uh, we're going to do, now what we do each Sunday, look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, anything like that, if you would turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Today we are starting in verse 26. And when you found that, if you're able, if you could stand and honor the reading of God's word. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and in all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We're going to leap over the seventh day, because nothing happens that day anyway. Starting at verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the, in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these next verses kind of locate the garden with a series of rivers, and then verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. We'll stop there today, and that's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I ask you to illumine the preaching of your word. Open our eyes, remove any hindrance to what it is you want to accomplish through your word today, which we believe is a living word because it was not inspired by the minds and imaginations of men, but by your spirit. And so I pray that you would accomplish the good purpose for which you've sent out this word today in each one of us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I'm sure if I were to do nothing more than just play the opening bars of the now all-too-familiar theme song from the opening credits, many of you, just from hearing those few notes, would already be able to recognize this as the theme music from the hit NBC TV series, This Is Us. Um, even if, actually, you never watched a single episode, uh, just from the commercials playing so much, you probably would recognize that, da-da-da-da, you'd be like, oh yeah, I know it. I don't remember who it was that initially uh, was first recommended this show uh, to us, but my wife and I, we were quickly caught up in the emotional roller coaster that is uh, the story of the Pearson family, Jack and Rebecca, Kate, Kevin, and Randall, uh, who have a, a pretty compelling origin story themselves. If you've watched the show, you're introduced to it quite early on in season one there. You've got a young white couple in love, pregnant with triplets, uh, who end up losing one of the children in childbirth, 
But then that same day, right, uh, a black child is left at a fire station. He's brought to the hospital, and they end up adopting this child. So still come home with three kids. And then, you know, then the drama unfolds. And here we go. We've gone from a house with no kids to three kids. That's a lot. Um, you were dealing with interracial issues. That's a, what does it look like for white parents to raise a black child? And then, of course, you know, the, the most or one of the formative events of that family when the children are all 17 and the tragic death of their father, which really overshadows the rest of the whole series, dealing with how does that affect the rest of them. Um, there's a lot of things that I liked about that show, um, but something that was particularly beautiful that you saw throughout the whole thing and which has direct relevance to where we're going today was the strong sense of family identity, family identity that was instilled in all the kids throughout the thing, no matter their differences, their weirdnesses, uh, strengths, failures, no matter what happened, mountain peak experiences, deep valleys that they walked through, they always knew who they were and where they came from, just had that strong sense of that. And because they knew that, because they had that family identity, it enabled them to face really whatever came against them with a sense of stability, kind of a rootedness, a pride, as well as even a sense of what their personal responsibility in that situation was. It was as if the title of the show was kind of like their family declaration, just kind of like, this is us. Take it or leave it. Uh, this is us. This is who we are. Okay? We're, we're Pearsons, which I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, it makes me wish, like I know it's a TV family, but I wish that all families, my own included, had that same sense of family identity about us, that, that we could get over that thing where we feel like we have to compare ourselves to other people or we're in competition with other families. We could just be who we are and say, this is us. We, we, this is who we are. And just be proud of that. Just be settled in that. I wonder if just that sense alone wouldn't help many of the seemingly impossible things that we face every day feel a little bit more possible. I don't know. But, but here's, thing, here's something I do know. Regardless of whether or not we ever achieve that sense as an individual family, I believe the origin story of all humanity that we have here in our passage today is absolutely intended to instill that sense of family identity in us at kind of like a global level. That, that that's what we're supposed to be gathering here, that despite our differences and our weirdnesses, our various strengths and weaknesses, different cultural identities, that we could still look across the street at our neighbor and look across the world at our neighbors and say, this is us, a human race. Here we are, all image bearers of God. And what does that mean, though? <laughs> What does that mean? Like in verse 26 there, look, when he says we are all made in the image and likeness of God, what does that mean? And, and then what are the outcomes? What are the, the consequences of that identity? Well, okay, we're going to spend a few minutes this morning just talking about that together. Uh, as we continue in this teaching series we began last Sunday entitled Origin Story, the whole idea being that we're seeking to grow in both the depth of understanding as well as appreciation for the New Testament story of Jesus by studying the origins of that story found in the Old Testament. Last Sunday, we looked at the origin of everything and talked about how the creation account in Genesis 1 reveals to us, at least, Jesus as the author of creation, 
as well as the goodness of what God made, the goodness of his creation. This week, I want to zero in on the origin story of humanity. Try to answer those two questions. That is, what is the content of image bearing? And then what is the consequence of image bearing? What is the content and consequence of image bearing? That's what we're going to look at today. So if you close your Bibles, Bible app, whatever you're using today, if you could open it again to our passage, Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 26. Follow along with me as we look at the origin of us. Okay, so let's look first of all at the content of image bearing. The content of image bearing, which is ultimately trying to answer the question, what does it mean in verse 26 when God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness? What does that mean? Which, believe it or not, is not as easy a question to answer as you might think. Um, In fact, throughout church history, there's been all kinds of different theories proposed as to what the truth is proposed here in this passage that men and women are made in the image and likeness of God means. I mean, I don't want to spend a great deal of time laying out those different theories as, I mean, that's really all they are, theories, none of which are conclusive and definitive, although they all do seek to be faithful to the biblical evidence. And you know what? Full disclosure, for that matter, even what I present to you this morning as my own idea of what this means to be made in the image and likeness of God is, is my own theory. Uh, It's my own take on what I think the Bible says. And the reason it's such a difficult question to answer is because the Bible doesn't actually say, like, outright what being made in the image of God and in his likeness means. It just says that we are. It says we are, and then each theory is ultimately drawn from inferences from the biblical text. All right, well, it says this, and it says that we're in the image, so that must mean this. That's how we've drawn these theories over the years. So if you look at verse 26, second half there, if you're using the New International Version, which I'm using, you can see here it says the translators are subscribing to what is referred to as a functional view or a functional theory of image bearing. That is, that bearing the image of God means that we're his representatives, his vice regents meant to rule over God's creation, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, considering that the very first command God gives us after making us there in verse 28 is we're to increase in number, have a lot of babies, and then subdue or rule over the earth. It's also in line with King David's description of, description of humanity, which we read earlier this morning. Cool way that God worked that out because we didn't work that out together. Um, Psalm 8, where he describes us as being made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, then made rulers over the works of God's hands. Everything put under our feet. So that's, that makes sense where we got that theory. Problem is, first of all, the original Hebrew text doesn't say, let us make my mankind in our image so that they may rule. It doesn't say that. It just says, and let them rule. So clearly the New International Version is kind of like tipping their hand to what view of creation they hold in that translation. Second thing is that the function of you really describes for us the result of being image bearers of God, but it still doesn't tell us what it is. It just says, because we're image bearers, we are to rule over God's creation. Okay. So there's also a relational theory of what it means to be made in God's image and likeness, which sees our ability to be in relationship with God and other people. That's what it means to be made in God's image and likeness. In the same way that God in his triune unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is himself relational, so we are in his image when we are relationships with one another and with God. That's how we image him. 
There's a substantive or physical theory that sees just our physical bodies. Our physical bodies, that's what it means to be made in the likeness of God, which makes sense when we see the outworking of God's plan to make mankind in his image and likeness there in chapter 2, verse 7. He forms man out of the ground, breathes life into him. So if he's going to make something in his image, and this is what he makes, maybe that's what the image is. And so it's our physical bodies. Problem there is that again and again, the Bible affirms that God is a spirit. So in what sense is our physical form made in the likeness of a spirit which has no form? So sometimes I think the answers leave us with more questions than we have answers. But as you can see, each one of these theories, they're all seeking to remain faithful to the biblical text. We're trying to understand what this means, but none of them is able to fully capture what is meant by being made in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, and this is my own theory, by the way, in answer to the question, okay, is being made in the image and likeness of God our function as rulers over creation? our relational capabilities with God and others, or our physical form, I think the best answer to that question is yes. Right. That's what it means. In fact, I liked how one commentator put it, saying that really the best image to think about when it comes to this whole idea of the content and meaning of image bearing is to think of a reflection in a mirror. That's, that's one of the best kind of word pictures to think of. What does it mean to be in God's image and likeness? A reflection in a mirror. Because a reflection is not the person or the thing being reflected. It, is still, uh, it gives us a true picture, if it's a good mirror anyway. It gives us a true picture of the subject's substance, expression, actions, clearly displayed in that reflection. I think that's a helpful way to think about what it means to be made in God's image and likeness. We are a reflection of our Creator. There are a few key details about what it means to be made in God's image and likeness that no one disputes. First of all, every man, woman, and child on earth has God's image or is made in God's image and likeness, regardless of whether or not you even think there is a God. It's not a conditional thing. All of us are made in his image and likeness. That's the first thing. Secondly, we retained that image even after the fall recorded in Genesis 3, as passages like Genesis 9, James 3 reveal. So, while, yes, the, the image of God, or the imago Dei, as it's called, is undoubtedly affected in some way by the fall, we still retain that image and likeness in such a way that judgment of God is incurred if human persons are killed, abused, mistreated. Lastly, as you see in the second half of verse 27, men and women are both said to be made in God's image and likeness equally. That is, there's no one gender that... Uh, has more of God's image than the other. In fact, as some see it, both are actually required in order to fully express what the image of God means. I think that's true because th there's differences between the sexes. Right? And together, all together, we reflect the image and, and likeness of what God is. Okay, you made it. That's it. That's all we're going to say. That's a lot of technical information. Again, I didn't want to spend a great deal of time unpacking these. Uh, first of all, just because, again, these are theories, not this isn't concrete, this is exactly what it is. And secondly, because this isn't a seminary class on the Imago Dei here. We, we are, as with any text of Scripture, I always want to explain it as sufficiently as I can, but then I want to get to the practical outworkings of what that means. As I say every week, I want to get to what does it mean, why does it matter, and what, what should we do about it. I think that's where our study of the Word needs to take us. 
But before we move on to look at those implications and talk about the consequences of image bearing, I think it's important to understand that understanding this origin story from the Old Testament already does set us up to understand some important New Testament truths. First of all, as it has to do with both the humanity as well as the deity of Jesus. This shows us and sets us up to understand those things because, first of all, in order to live the perfectly obedient life that none of us ever could, die the death that we all deserved to die in order to accomplish our salvation, God had to, as the book of Hebrews said, be made like us in every way. He had to take on human flesh. And we read some of these verses this morning. So when Paul describes a, a Jesus as being made in the likeness of man, Philippians 2, John describes Jesus as the word made flesh coming to dwell among us. We know from this origin story that means Jesus was made human, right? If he, a spirit can't die, so a physical form needs to be taken in order to come and accomplish our salvation, live the perfect life that we never could. But we're also set up to better understand the deity of Jesus, uh, particularly by way of kind of contrast to our origin story, as rather than being said to be made in the image and likeness of God, or that he was really made at all, Paul describes Jesus as the one who is the image of God. We read this this morning. He's not made in the image of God. He is the image of God. And the one who Hebrews describes as the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature which means far more than someone who merely reflects the image and likeness of God as we do. Jesus is the substance and the subject of that reflection. Okay, so that's the content of image bearing, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of our creator, as, as much as we can infer and theorize anyways from what the Bible tells us. Last thing I want to look at together with you is the consequence of image bearing. The consequence of image bearing. To put it another way, this is answering the question for us of what are the outcomes or the implications of being made in God's image and this idea of our origin story of us. What are the implications of that? And I believe the first and greatest consequence of all persons being made in the image and likeness of God is that this then becomes the basis, the foundation for our family identity as a human race. All of us made in the image and likeness of God, this is us. The origin to which each and every person can also look back on, and just like the Pearson family, always know who we are, where we came from, because of this origin story in a way that brings dignity, value, and worth to every person. If you look at the whole creation account, you see that as human persons, we are the only ones said to be made in the image and likeness of God. It's a special honor and dignity of that given to us as humanity. It also brings about stability, a sense of pride, a sense of personal responsibility to each other, to God, to his creation, knowing this origin story. So it creates that family identity, knowing this origin story. That's the first thing. But there's so many other implications, actually, to what this means from this origin story. I want to just highlight a few of them. The first particularly as it relates to that substantive or physical view of our family identity as a human race, means that as persons made in the image and likeness of God, racism, sexism, slavery, any kind of oppression or subjugation of another person are all completely antithetical to what it means to be human. It's against our, our very nature of how we're made. 
For if all people, regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, are said to be made in the same image and likeness of their creator, in what world is, is superiority, degradation, enslavement of another fellow image bearer ever appropriate? It doesn't make sense. You've got to do a lot of twisting in gymnastics, which people have done over the years, in order to make that work. In fact, this understanding of our origin story is what undergirded much of the fight to abolish slavery in the British Empire by William Wilberforce, as well as the fight for racial equality by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This was their belief that undergirded that fight for equality and fight for, uh, to end slavery. William Wilberforce. Uh, stating on the basis of this belief, every human being bears the image and likeness of their creator, felt so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable, did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. From this time, he said, I determined I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. Dr. King, in his own Battleful Equality, saying, The whole concept of Imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every human has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day, he said, we will learn that. I wonder if we have yet. I wonder. What that means, knowing that, means that whenever we see attitudes, whenever we see even practices of superiority, of prejudice against other image bearers still today, like in life in general, but particularly in the church and those who claim to be followers of Jesus. We need to root out those beliefs and practices, expose them to the light of our origin story in order to be seen for the hypocrisy that they truly are. This, this can't coexist as people who understand the origin story. I think it also means we need to be willing to listen non-defensively to the stories of those fellow image bearers who've experienced prejudice, who've experienced discrimination from the church firsthand, be that for their race, their religion, their gender, sexual identity, mental or physical health, all kinds of ways that people have experienced discrimination and oppression over the years at the hands of the church. I think we need to listen to those stories non-defensively in order to help heal those wounds of injustice and then really reestablish that family identity that we all have as those made in the image and likeness of our creator. I think that's a, that's a key implication to this origin story. The next one has to do with the functional view, functional view of our family identity. For if you look at chapter 2 and verse 15, look there with me. Along with being given dominion over all creation, we were placed in that role of vice regency, not to just chill and enjoy God's creation, but to work the ground and to keep it or to care for it. That's why we were put in God's creation, which means, first and foremost, work has a pre-fall origin. I'm sorry to tell you, you cannot trace the awfulness of your job uh, back to the fall and be like, oh, I wouldn't have to do this if it wasn't for those guys. You would. Uh, work is harder now, and the Bible does say that uh, because of that, but work has a pre-fall origin. But it also means that our origin story has relevance to how we steward the earth over which God has given us dominion. 
means things like creation care are supposed to matter to us as image bearers. Not, not to the place where we worship creation, no, but matter probably a lot more than it does to a lot of us. And then beyond that, beyond care for the earth itself, I think we need to care for those who dwell on the earth as well, which means helping to alleviate things like poverty, injustice, hunger, uh, aiding in disaster relief. All these kinds of things are included in a functional view of what it means to be image bearers of God. And you see examples of this all throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. We are to be those who steward and care for God's creation in its totality. Lastly, as the image of God relates to the relational view of our family identity. This means that just as God exists in perfect relational intimacy as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so too is his desire that his image bearers would dwell with one another in such community. We are to dwell with one another that way, which means we need, we need to figure out what are the things that hinder that community between us? What are the things that get in the way of us being in that relationship with one another? We need to root those out, expose them to the light of our origin story. We, we, we are made in the same image. We're family. Let's reestablish that family identity. But then even more than that, actually, if you remember part of Jesus' high priestly prayer in Gethsemane, John 17, when he's praying for his disciples, he adds this, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And then he adds this, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Which means, man, it's concluded there, along with fellowship and community with one another, the desire of our creator is that we would be in relationship with him. That's another reason or a consequence of what it means to be made in God's image and likeness. He wants us to be in relationship with him. Which, man, can you even get your mind around such an idea? The creator of all things wants to be in relationship with us. I mean, it makes sense. We'd want to be in relationship with him. I mean, he's God. He's kind of a big deal. Same way that, you know, half the girls in the world right now want to be besties with Taylor Swift. We, that makes sense. But to imagine that that dynamic is like switched around the other way, that he's the one who wants to be in relationship with you and with me. And he actually designed us to be in relationship with him. Wow. No, no other world religion has anything close to this. A staggering realization that when he finally came to understand it is undoubtedly what led Augustine of Hippo to famous, famously conclude, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So, there it is. All, all this together is my best take, anyways, of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Again, the Bible just says that we are, but this is kind of my best take altogether of what that means. And yet, as I alluded to earlier, and we'll look at this in a lot more detail in a few weeks, if you know the story of the Bible, you know that really in the very next chapter, the perfect kind of beautiful reflection of God that we once had was marred. It was changed buried or covered over in some way when mankind rebelled against God and as a result lost the, the closeness and the intimacy of relationship we once had with God. We lost the, the clarity of that image which we once had. 
So that as the Apostle Paul puts it in his famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, now at this present time we see only in a mirror dimly. We know only in part. But then with the hopeful addition, he says one day that dim reflection will become clear once again when we see Jesus face to face. That is, when Jesus returns, heaven and earth are one once again. That clear reflection of God, which we once had, will be restored and returned once again. Which, thinking about that this week, made me wonder something. Made me wonder if the reason God's image was buried or distorted in whatever way it was at the fall wasn't so much because sin distorted God's image as it was because sin removed us from God's presence. Again, we're theorizing here, I wonder. That 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 was the thing that dimmed and distorted the image of God. Because think about it. When mankind dwelt in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, as we saw in our origin story, the man and the woman were said to reflect God's image perfectly. That time that they were always with him in his presence, they reflected his image perfectly. Just as Moses has said, when he came down from the mountain after meeting with God, his face shone so much from being in the presence of God, they had to put a veil over his face. That was a direct result of being in God's presence. It was looking on God and beholding God that, that adjusted, that altered that image. What, what, what do we say sometimes? You, you become what you behold, right? Then it was only after humanity was expelled from God's presence that we no longer reflected him in the same way. Why? Maybe, maybe because we could no longer look on him. We could no longer behold him, but now we could only look on ourselves, look on one another, and thus, over time, forgot who we were, forgot where and, and who we came from. Which reminds me of a story I remember my father telling years ago in his, his own preaching. I shared this with some of you before. A man who was visiting a friend on a farm one day. And he was so surprised and shocked when they walked by the chicken coop and he saw a full-grown bald eagle inside the chicken coop. And, you know, he's shocked. He's, he's about to intervene when his friend just kind of just stopped him and just kind of motioned for him to watch. And as he observed, he saw the eagle, crazily, just walking around with the other chickens, scratching at the ground, pecking for bugs and grain and whatnot. As he looked closer, he saw that the eagle's talons and claws were all gnarled and calloused, and his wings, like her majestic wings, were almost half gone from just dragging on the earth for so long. So he looked to his friend, kind of just like, so what's the story? And he told them how he had found this eagle as a baby, fallen out of the nest, mother gone, so he had brought it home to kind of nurse it back to health, put it with the other birds there in the chicken coop. But then when it was healed and restored and kind of back to health, he tried to release it and it wouldn't go. And so it had just grown up the rest of its life with these chickens. And so he said to the man, he said, the problem is she doesn't know she's an eagle anymore. And isn't that just the same with you and me today? We lose sight of our origin story, and as a result, we can't remember who we are or where we came from. Commenting on that story from Exodus 4, if you know it, where God is calling Moses to be the leader that he had made him to be, 
the, lead, the shepherd of his people, to lead him out, his people out of slavery in Egypt, and Moses is refusing. He's arguing it back with God because that's not how he sees himself. I remember a pastor pointing out one time that the question God asked Moses in response to his doubts, in response to all his fear and not seeing things the same way, he didn't say to Moses, why don't you trust me? I'm God. But he asks Moses this question, who made you? Who made man's mouth, Moses? Doing what? Pointing him back to the origin story. Remember where you came from. Remember who you are. But then this pastor went on to say that this about God's question, who made you? He says, but if you don't know the answer to that question, or if you've forgotten the answer to that question, he says, you will hand other people your mirror to show you who you are. And I think the call and the blessing of this origin story for each one of us here today, more than anything else, is for you to hand your mirror back to God. To allow him to show you who you are. To show you who he made you to be. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Beholding the glory of the Lord, looking to him, turning our eyes back to him, and as a result, being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what restores the image back when we behold him. Look to him to show us who we are. I think that's... That's the power of this origin story for each one of us today. In laying down our self-assessment or the assessment of everyone else around you and receiving Jesus' divine assessment of you. Reminding you again both who he made you to be and who he is continuing to make you to be. Amen.